As we come now to the Word of God, let's bow our heads as we stand and pray. Father, when we think of winds and waves, it's amazing to us to think that your Word has the power to calm them. And yet we come now to that word. And so we pray that you would speak and you would take away the sin, cause us to repent. You would take away the fear, cause us to trust. And through it all, Jesus, you would be honored, and we pray this in his name. Amen. So, friends, Ruth chapter 4, the conclusion to this wonderful romance. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So, Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here, and he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Marlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Do please sit down, my friends. Well, what a great morning it's already been with all those baptisms. That is exciting to see, encouraging to see God's uh, work right here, Sunday by Sunday at College Church. So many good things go on, and uh, it's good for us all to have a little taste of that this morning. Well, here's the thing. I I believe that every single one of us has the opportunity to be extraordinary. And actually, it seems to me that's actually not what a lot of people think. It seems to me that many people think that actually there are, you know, most of us are ordinary people and then there are a few sort of special people, you know, a Churchill, an Einstein, a George Washington if you like. Other than these famous individuals, the typical attitude is the rest of us must be satisfied to live uh, sort of ordinary lives, humdrum lives. Get up in the morning, go to bed at night, pay your bills, eventually die. And it seems to me that sort of attitude infects even the church. There are the celebrity Christians, and we all We'll have our own lists, either from the past or currently, a Tim Keller, a Mark Driscoll. And then there's the rest of us. Wrong. Wrong. The way I read the Bible, I am as much made in the image of God as you and as anyone else. Now, of course, you know, it's true. Some people simply do have more brains than others. Any teacher will tell you that. And it's also true that some people are better looking than others, which is why we're not all on TV, you know. Some people are taller, better at sport. Some people are shorter. There's a wide range of uh, these kind of things. Some people have different kinds of advantages that they are born with. Some are born with money. Some are born with poverty, But it seems to me that biblically, if we are a Christian, every single Christian has a talent, is talented, if you like, has a gift. And it also seems to me that in the church, every single one of those gifts is necessary for the good functioning of the body. Some may be more prominent, some less so appropriately, but they are all necessary given that we're all made in the image of God, given that we are, if we are Christians, we've been remade in the image of Christ, seems to me there is no such thing as a quote-unquote ordinary person. It's just a person with extraordinary potential. 
Now, it is true that not everyone lives up to that extraordinary potential. Some people made in the image of God, I'm afraid, seem to spend their whole lives watching second-rate daytime TV shows. Perhaps it takes a moment of realization for you to wake up to your potential as someone made in the image of God, perhaps as a Christian or someone who might become a Christian today. I actually had a moment a bit like that this week. I want to share it with you. It was so remarkable. Uh, We were traveling down to Dallas to preach, and we flew in on this airline that will remain henceforward nameless. And for some reason or other, whether it was instructions from the, the tower on the ground or however the decision was made, they decided that they would still attempt to land at Dallas, even though it was in the middle of really a massive Texas-scale storm. And it was, uh, if you've ever seen that far side cartoon where the captain up front sort of says, oh, a bit of turbulence, and they kind of go like this, you know. <laughs> you seen that one? It's, it was like that, but they weren't playing. So they came into land and tried, and it was the plane was like this and this, and then, well, and they, well, we didn't seem to quite make it that time. We'll try, you know. And then, really, I didn't notice. Um, oh, we'll just go around from a different angle and try again. Uh, you sure? We're thinking, and they try. Um, we are a little low on petrol now, or fuel, or not petrol, um, gas, I guess you say over here. And we're now going to Austin, so there we went to Austin. And we landed, and I got off the plane, and rented a car, and drove four hours to Dallas, because I had to preach the next morning. Now, you have to understand, as I tell this story, it's, it, it's funny looking back, but I've flown on um, Aeroflot flights in the former Soviet Union, which were nicknamed Aeroflop, uh, for good reason. And so, and I've flown on those, and they were crazy, and I have, you know, flown in the middle of storms on Aeroflot flights. So I've seen some things. This was on a whole different scale. <laughs> and uh, I, I just thought we were dead, you know, about 10 or 15 times. And so here's what's going through my mind. I'm thinking, okay, so I'm about to die. Um, And there may be a pilot out there who will tell me, oh, it was nothing. But, um, uh, and so I'm praying. I'm thinking, well, if I, maybe I'm going to die quickly, but maybe maybe I won't, in which case there'll be someone next to me who's dying. And how am I going to be a witness to this, you know? Um, And then, of course, I'm thinking, who's going to take care of my children? And then I'm thinking about the ministry. I mean, is that really it, you know? I mean, is that all you want me to do, God? A couple of churches, a few books, a few sermons? Bam! Glory. You know, is that it? And evidently not, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) And so so I I feel um, this morning a bit like, you know, the story of Jonah when he was spat out of the whale onto the land at Nineveh, and some scholars think he used that story when he preached. I feel a bit like that. Jonah kind of spewed out of the whale, 
then, I, I look then at this passage with, with rather different eyes. Seems to me that Boaz and Ruth were basically ordinary people, but then they became extraordinary. Now let's look down and see how and why. First, what we see here is an extraordinary business arrangement. This is the first half of the passage down to verse 11 or 12 or so, or perhaps verse 10, but there's a business deal here. Except it's a business deal with a bit of a difference. Uh, There are elements to this business deal that frankly don't make sense to a lot of scholars. And I think it's as if the narrator is saying to us, now watch this business deal. This is not business as usual. So to begin with, Boaz calls the other man over to him by saying simply friend or perhaps, um, you know, using in Hebrew a kind of so-and-so phrase. Hey, so-and-so, hey, you, got a moment? Now, I don't know about you, but I suspect that's not normally the way to begin a business deal. Hey, you. But in a story where names mean so much, it is highly significant that the man who had the closest relation to Ruth and therefore the right to redeem her and the property remains nameless throughout the story. He's just so-and-so, friend, hey, you guy. So he remains ordinary. And uh, there's the sandal, of course, which has you know, caused much head scratching among people, if not foot scratching, I suppose. It's a little unusual, isn't it? Something that was drawn from the law in Deuteronomy. Uh, There's just a custom, which apart from this passage we have no evidence of. But at any rate, it feels a little odd. Maybe it was, just like an ancient equivalent of a handshake. You know, here you are. Presumably it was returned afterwards, I suppose. There's also some discussion here in terms of these sort of it's not business as usual elements. There's some discussion as to whether the land was being bought or sold at this moment. It doesn't make much difference to the story, but it's a sort of unusual element. Most of all, though, but most of all, there is the small print in the deal. And when he reads the small print, the other man backs out. He has every right to do so understandable for him to have done so. Why? Because for him to have purchased the property meant that he also would have needed to redeem Ruth, which meant that the property would now be in the name of that family, not his. And so he figured that his whole estate could be put at risk. And so he backs away. Nope, nope, I'm not doing that. Thanks very much. But Boaz does not back away. It would have been understandable to have done so. There is, as it were, a pretty significant lien on this property. Boaz is not apparently going to win financially out of this deal. This is not a normal deal. The narrator is saying this is not business as usual. Any typical businessman would have walked away from this deal. Not Boaz. He spies this opportunity. He seizes this opportunity to become extraordinary. He goes beyond the normal. He puts his estate at risk in order to redeem Ruth and Naomi and their whole family. And so he becomes extraordinary. Here's what I found that Americans, according to reliable statistics, uh, 
published in Leadership Journal, uh, what Americans spend their money on each year. $604 billion a year on going out to eat. $48.35 billion a year on pets, taking care of pets. $20.2 billion a year on video and computer games. $18.8 billion a year on DVDs and movie downloads. $7 billion a year on virtual goods for use in online communities or online games. That's a lot of money on eating out and having some entertainment. I guess my question for you this morning after my experience this week, is this. If you are going down in a plane, will you be glad you spent that money on that DVD or that restaurant rather than giving it to the work of the gospel? Our money, according to Jesus, our deal-making, according to this passage, defines who we are. It shows where our heart is, Jesus says. But you can live extraordinary. Why? Because of the extraordinary gospel story, because of the extraordinary God. Let me try and explain that for you, how that works in practice with an illustration. Some years ago, I was going on a mission trip once, and I thought I'd arranged everything. I'd visited Cambridge and Oxford, and I put together what I thought was a good team of Oxbridge undergraduates to take them off to do some mission work in a university abroad in a foreign country. They're all ready to go. There was one snag, one uh, hindrance. I had to buy the tickets by a certain date, but we, I had not yet uh, got the money in from the students, and, <laughs> and I didn't have anything like that kind of money personally. So the date approached, and I had frankly no idea what to do about this. On the morning of that day, when I needed to pay for those tickets, an unmarked envelope appeared beneath the door with cash in for the exact amount we needed. I can't tell you that's always going to happen. I can just tell you it did happen. But when I look at my life, it's my experience that it works like this, that God loves faith. It's my experience that God wants us to live extraordinary so that He can show us that He is an extraordinary God. And this deal, you see, makes no business sense, frankly. Uh, The friend, the so-and-so, the hey guy, he understood that and he backed away. He was ordinary. Boaz understood that God was an extraordinary God and he did the extraordinary as a consequence. One time we had to raise a million dollars at uh, Trinity in New Haven in a very short time to buy a building as our contract at the old building had expired. We gave a vision presentation to the church. After the church meeting, a Yale parent came up to me with a check and said, uh, we want to help, and uh, I took it up to the deacons, uh, the envelope unopened. They opened it, and it was $50,000. Tiny church. Apparently, tiny resources. Boaz was a man of standing with large resources and fields and harvesters. 
Sometimes that's even harder. He had more at risk. But he now lived in an extraordinary way. So you heard the announcement from the deacons earlier. Could we please take care of that? Well, second then, to an extraordinary family life. Now this is it, my friends. You look down from verse 10 or 11 on to the end of the passage. You'll see uh, this extraordinary family life is introduced. Uh, Not for him mowing the grass, nine to five, charity begins at home. No, his family is going to be like that of Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Their family is going to have a massive impact on the whole people of God. They're not going to pull down the blinds, turn off the phones, and gather together in a little holy huddle and watch the rest of the world go by. They're not going to snuggle together under a blanket and watch reruns of the Cosby show. They're going to build up the house of Israel. They are going to be the kind of family that you can build a church upon. In fact, they're going to be famous. Not ordinary anymore. Ephrathah, the region, the the, the noble people, Bethlehem, the city. There they will have renown, it is predicted. In other words, people will not drive by their house not having any idea who lives there, whether they still live there or whether they've moved on by now. People will drive by and will say to themselves, oh, you you know, that's the house of Boaz and Ruth. Why? Because of this extraordinary commitment to the extraordinary God. The whole family is invested in building up God's people. It's an extraordinary family life. And because of that, they're going to overwrite bad patterns. So Tamar's infamous relationship with Judah, the the last time this kind of leveret marriage was attempted, is now going to be forgotten. And what will be remembered is the romance of Boaz and Ruth. So the story in the town of that family that did that thing that led to that result, the kind of story that the local newspapers carry and the Christian bloggers blog, that will be forgotten as this story, the romance of Boaz and Ruth, takes now its place. Extraordinary business deal leading to an extraordinary family life. Why? People will say, hey, those guys, they actually meant it. They actually believe that God is a redeemer in a real true sense, and therefore Boaz put his whole estate at risk to redeem Ruth. Wow, look at that family. They are building up the house of Israel. So if Boaz is extraordinary in his business dealing, now we see that Ruth is more so, or at least as much so, in her extraordinary family relationships. So you can see here, can't you, that she takes the child and she sort of lets Naomi um, have him on her lap in a symbolic gesture. And in a sense then, the, the, the women are saying, this is Naomi's child, and it is her redemption. And so strangely, this extraordinary family life is introduced. The, the narrator begins to sort of mix his categories. You know, who is the Redeemer now? Is it Boaz? I, I thought it was Boaz. Or was it now Obed? Well, it's Obed because of 
Boaz. Jesse, because of Obed, because of Boaz. David, because of Jesse, because of Obed, because of Boaz. And we know Jesus, the Redeemer to come, in this same extraordinary family. See, here's how this works, I think. If, If it's easy in suburbia for you and I to live ordinary Christian lives when it comes to business deals, it is perhaps even easier to do the same when it comes to family. Uh, When families up and down the country are falling apart, we want to invest in each other, and that's right and proper, and we should do that. But here we see a model of God calling us to live in our families for a higher purpose, not just building each other up, which is good and right and proper, but calling us to follow this model of investing in our families with a purpose of building up the whole house of Israel, the whole people of God. The child is Naomi's, not just Ruth's. Ruth was an extraordinary woman. This promised child, she lays on her mother-in-law's lap. And so the extraordinary work of God is carried on to the praise of the extraordinary God through two very ordinary people, Boaz and Ruth, who seize the opportunity to believe in the extraordinary God and so live up to our human calling to be extraordinary as people made in the image of God. Not just atoms and cells and biological processes. Not just living for ourselves and making deals that will keep our pension in good shape but living beyond the boundaries of the normal to live extraordinary lives for the extraordinary God. Uh, One one of the virtues of reading history, I did history in my first degree, and so I I, I like to read history still. didn't put me off for life. Uh, One of the virtues of reading history is it can give you a bit of perspective on the present. Sometimes it feels that people think that you know, uh, Christianity began five years ago or the human history started in 1984 or something like that, you know. And if you ever have a chance to read histories of missionaries from a hundred years or so ago, take that opportunity. College Church sends out hundreds of missionaries or supported missionaries all the time and each and every one of those missionaries makes significant sacrifices for the cause of the gospel through their life and in relation to their families. But in the 19th century, things were at a different level and commitment was measured by a different scale. When missionaries were first sent out to Africa, they were sent with the various expected farewells and provisions. As they got on their ship, a husband, a wife, sometimes perhaps children with them, they took with them, though, an unexpected addition Often they went not just with warm wishes sent with them or with favored special uh, preferences in terms of provisions, but also the unexpected addition for us of a casket, a coffin. The mortality rate of missionaries then was so high that it was viewed by the mission boards as simple common sense to send missionaries with their own coffin, just in case. Like today, missionaries take malaria tablets or duct tape or Ziploc bags. They took coffins. 
And so I wonder what sort of legacy our families will leave, and I wonder at what sort of extraordinary levels of commitment, letting a mother-in-law have Obed rest on her knee. What is required for the sort of gospel legacy here to take place? Perez came from Judah and Tamar, a notorious union. But that family tree, that stock, was redeemed through this extraordinary married couple, committed to each other by covenant, so we looked at last week, and by contentment, and therefore happiness in each other. And their extraordinary family life led to extraordinary gospel progress. Now, I have to be honest and say I, I cannot say I, I've always managed to live up to this level of extraordinariness. I want to. Sometimes I think we've come at least close. When we first arrived in America, we came at what we took to be the call of God with a laptop, a printer, three suitcases, and nowhere to stay. We arrived at the week of Thanksgiving, uh, still getting used to the American culture and not realizing this might be a busy time for the church. Fortunately, or shall we say providentially, one family was out of town and so we stayed in their apartment for a week while we began to look for another place to live. We called around various places at random trying to find an apartment we could afford to rent. One of the people we called happened to have been a former member of the church, excited to hear that things were moving forward. They offered us a place to stay in their apartment rental units a week early before it was ready, otherwise we might have been on the streets. At least it felt like that. Oh, how little we trusted. That year we had nothing to guarantee any kind of success. Unlike Boaz, we had no financial resources and nothing to pay our way but enough to last one year for boom or bust. Without effectiveness, we would be going home after that year with nothing much to show for it. And, you know, frankly, sometimes looking back, uh, Rochelle and I wonder what we were doing. I also wonder whether I am doing it now. I wonder whether you are. What extraordinary family life, what extraordinary business deal for the sake of the gospel the good of the people of God is Christ calling you towards. There is ordinary Orpah who returned home to Moab to take the nice, safe, sensible option to look for a man among her own people. If she had gone for career advice, that was the advice she would have received. Go home, take things easy, find a man among your own tribe. Don't hang on to that Naomi woman any longer. The horse has bolted. Don't try to shut the stable door. It's time to start over and go back. So Orpah was ordinary. Understandable, but ordinary. Ruth was extraordinary. Your people, my people, your God, my God, where you go, I will go, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. That is her mission statement, if you like, that runs throughout the book of Ruth. She makes an extraordinary commitment and she follows through, even to laying the child on the lap of Naomi at the end. This other kinsman, Redeemer, the so-and-so, the 
friend. Hey, you guy who is nameless and remains nameless in the story, who was also ordinary. He saw a business deal. He spied a good opportunity. But when he read the small print, he turned away. It didn't make business sense. But no one can do great or extraordinary things for God if he counts without God. You know, I would rather turn up to heaven as the plane crashes in the storm, knowing that I counted on the Word of God and took the extraordinary risk than get there and knew that I played it safe and lived an ordinary life below par below what I am made to be in the image of God and recreated in the image of Christ to be set apart for works that He has prepared in advance for me to walk in. He was ordinary. It's just an ordinary business deal for him. It didn't make sense, and he walked away from the deal. Boaz was extraordinary. Now, of course, he was in love with Ruth, which must have helped But with Ruth came debt, and with her came a mother-in-law-in-law. With her came another man's name and honor and lineage and support to maintain that inheritance. He was putting the, the Marlon name into the lineage of Perez, hardly an idyllic beginning with Judah and Tamar, but because of Boaz's actions safe, selflessly, his name, Boaz, is remembered as the one who redeemed Ruth, Naomi, and even Elimelech and Marlon, and the whole line of Judah moves forward now with uh, this genealogy, with its strange sort of leaps and bounds until it arrives at the famous name of David that foreshadows the far more famous son of David, great David's greater son. It is extraordinary. Extraordinary Boaz, ordinary so-and-so. Extraordinary Ruth, ordinary Opa. I wonder which we will be. Will we be an ordinary church? Will we be ordinary individuals? I'm not talking about great brains or great looks. One of the advantages of having a disabled son has been to see how God extraordinarily uses him. Again, history helps. It is not the great and the good who are extraordinary unless they make this extraordinary commitment. One book I read recently argued that only the elites could ever have any impact on society in any major way. Everyone else, everyone who did not either work at the high end of government or a CEO or something like that, a president of some internationally famous institution, an actor from Hollywood, anyone else outside the elites could work hard, but really would never have any significant impact on the world. The rest, according to the book, the 99%, if you like, were doomed to mediocrity. And the book was arguing that therefore, if we Christians wanted to have an impact on the world, we needed to target 
this elite. Now, I'm not saying that God cannot use the elite. I know He can. I'm saying that what counts is whether we believe in the extraordinary God in a real committed way so that we will make this kind of extraordinary business decision and live this kind of extraordinary family life. You see, the funny thing about this book that I read was that after the author had laid out his case at great length in theory, he then turned to give examples of world-changing movements, and then without a trace of irony or any apparent awareness of counterfactual, he started with a carpenter born in Bethlehem. a wandering nomad, a murderer, a prisoner in Egypt sold into slavery, any number of somewhat depressive prophets, a carpenter, a rather overly passionate, overeducated Pharisee, an African of Hippo, medieval monk, a London preacher with no tertiary education who refused the opportunity to get it because he heard the text reverberate in his, in his uh, mind, seekest thou great things for thyself, seek them not, and so became the prince of preachers, a businessman, a pretty young Moabitess a widow, a baby, an Obed, a David, a Messiah. Boaz, ordinary rich man. Ruth, ordinary impoverished woman. God, extraordinary. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray that every single one of us this morning would leave this building with a taste of you, the extraordinary God, who delights to take the weak things of this world, the things that are not. So that all the glory goes to you, God, so that no one can boast before you. Father God, we are glad for the gifts that you have given us. We do not wish to despise them, whether they are brains or good looks or sporting talent but we repent of any desire to worship those gifts and instead this morning lay them at your feet saying, prevent us, O oh Father God, from being ordinary. Instead, use us in extraordinary ways, perhaps only in the account of heaven finally noticed.
but still extraordinary and renowned for all eternity. That's our desire. And for that, uh, Father, I pray that you, the extraordinary God, would by your Spirit make yourself known to us this morning through your Word. You would draw men and women to yourself and that you would be honored and glorified. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.